Just Say Rad. Welcome back to the Just Say Rad podcast. My name is Raddy Ann Simon Play, film critic for CTV's Your Morning and Now Magazine. Uh, today we're talking about Hereditary, which you might have heard of. It's a little horror movie with a lot of hype, big critical reception. Not a movie I loved, and to help walk me through my feelings with this movie, I brought back Adam Naiman, the film critic and the author and the lecturer and the guy from my Phantom Thread podcast, which I know you all really loved, and if you haven't heard that one, you really got to go back and listen to that one. Um, so yeah, me, I talked to Adam, he, he walked me through you know, the hype, the reception, the movie itself, uh, and how that movie fits in with elevated horror as a genre, and basically how it holds up against horror movies from the last 50 years. Uh, so have a listen to that. Here we are on Hereditary. How is your relationship with your daughter? What? Peter? Charlie? Are you okay? Charlie? Please stop. Charlie! Charlie! Charlie. Please stop. I guess we should should start by saying this is obviously going to be a podcast for people who have seen Hereditary because we're not going to hold back on spoilers so and we're not going to explain the plot to you. Yeah, I already got sort of in trouble about spoilers once already with this movie. I (laughs) I refused to do it a second. Is this for your review in the ringer? Yeah, which is totally fair. Right. It's hard though because um, I I guess one one thing we can say to set up Hereditary is that it has more twists than normal. Whether that's a case of giving it credit for that or right. kind of trying to hold it to account for having a very crowded plot. Yeah. Uh, I've read a lot of different reviews of the movie and each of them only makes it to a different point before spilling the beans. Right, right, right. But yeah. like, there's certainly at least one thing that happens in this movie quite earlier yeah. and more ruthlessly than some people might expect. Yeah. And not just that thing. Again, we'll talk about yeah, all of it so we're not right going to be so, yeah. so coy, but like... That thing and also the culpability of another character in it happening. Yeah. That is a surprise. Yeah. It's a surprise, but it's also the whole f- the foundation of the movie is built on that scene. And you can't talk intelligently about the movie without covering what happens there. No. And I think that to sort of account for why the film is as in some ways popular and acclaimed as it is. And also in some ways has frustrated people the way it has. You, you kind of have to talk about where it goes and how right. it ends because it's... You know, it 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 it's it potentially kind of rich rich text for that. So right. from this point on, yeah, we will just say the, <laughs> the things that happen in Hereditary. The things that happen. Well, okay, so I mean, where should we begin here? Like, uh, I mean, should we start about with like with the influences of Hereditary? Like, uh, well, maybe we talk talk a bit about what's in it, and then we can say what it's what it's drawing from. I mean, what I'm interested in is the the idea of the movie as this kind of container. Mm-hmm. Which is really evident from the way it starts. There's that opening shot that oh, is the, sort of the, the circular shot that's tracing the inside of the room, and right. then you sort of, you know, you think it's a miniature, and then you see it's the family's house. I mean, this has been done before. And, yeah. You know, it's kind of like a drinking game. I mean, we're drinking while we do this. But <laughs> you could play a drinking where it's like every time there's a kind of shining nod, you, you take a drink. Right, right. And, and that starts at the beginning, because in The Shining, there's Nicholson overlooking the maze, and then yeah, thinking yeah. he sees his family in there. Yeah. I think the way Ari Aster uses that, and the dollhouse motif in general, is consistent with that Kubrickian idea of manipulation. Uh-huh. You know, like in The Shining, it's that Jack has his family trapped in the Overlook, and in this movie, it's that, you know, Annie, the Tony Collette character, making these miniatures, mm. 
you know, she's like restaging her life, yeah. restaging her family trauma. She has this big complex about her late mother that her late mother tried to control the family. Right. But in making these miniatures and kind of arranging them the way that she does, that's one of the hints you get maybe that that psychosis or that control freakery or right. whatever it is yeah, yeah. Has, has passed on to her. Okay. And it's just a really nice visual motif that Astor uses too because you're kind of playing the game of like, am I looking at real or am I looking at a miniature? Right. And, you know, it gives the movie this really precise geometric vacuum sealed <laughs> aesthetic the geometric vacuum sealed aesthetic is probably my favorite thing about the movie and that's not a good thing for a fucking horror movie right. and horror movie that is also a melodrama that is not a horror movie right. according to <laughs> the director well and you can, you know i mean you could argue for people who are really fond of the movie it's watching all these kind of unruly um messy elements kind of build up inside that precise environment mm-hmm. that's that, that's why they like the film. You know, right. I mean, it's a pretty standard thing in kind of haunted family or haunted house movies that you'll have a really ordered space that kind of falls apart. Right, right, you right. Know? And there's all kinds of motifs in this movie, too, of kind of like burning and decay and mess, mm-hmm. you know, characters getting wet and drenched. You know, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to ascribe brilliance to any of this, yeah. but it's, it's there. Does that, I mean, I, I remember the grandmother's funeral... Like, does the shot pans down? I think it's also in the trailer, or it's. Well, that's, into... I think that's the second funeral. Oh, is that the second? That oh, okay, right, right. The, oh, okay, the yeah. second funeral. So we should we should stop futzing around. Yeah. The second funeral. Okay. I mean, I mean, so it's interesting that you have this this little girl, Charlie. I think is played by Millie Shapiro, who's really for like the first twenty minutes this really compelling locus of whatever is bad that's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, like. It's strange to have a movie where the child's not relatable. Right. But she's fully inscrutable. Is it strange? I think so. I think it's strange the way this movie's organized mm-hmm. because, you know, in, in The Shining, for instance, Danny's kind of weird, but you're sympathetic to him because he's scared right. by what's happening. Right. And she doesn't seem scared by anything. I mean, right. she has that vision of her late grandmother in the field and she's totally kind of nonplussed by it. And, yeah. you know, she's doing these things that are like kind of disturbed child behavior, like cutting the heads off of birds and stuff but like to have her there and she has the signature sound of the movie that (laughs) that tongue clucking thing and then to just take her out of the equation the way the movie does have her beheaded right yeah uh, you know and then also have her older brother who's more of a vague character early on be responsible thus kind of turning him him into the protagonist or the co-protagonist with his mom I mean that's pretty righteously daring it surprised the hell out of the audience that I saw it with yeah. And it does that thing that kind of makes you like a horror movie, which is you feel like maybe it's not fucking around. Right, right, right yeah. Like, I will, we will kill a child, <laughs> you know? Yeah, kill the is... child that you assumed was going to be the one that, the... like, the exorcist child. Yeah. Uh, Lind- yeah, exactly. So, you know, it confounds narrative yeah. expectations to some extent. It, it demagnetizes, like, a moral compass, yeah. you know? Well, let me, like, start, because that scene is, I mean, I, I think that scene is, for one, it's uh, the way the way it breaks down is really incredible. But it's also the scene that start where my problems with the movie really began. Right. Right. Because I mean, when I say I think it's incredible, it's it's a scene where this girl, you know, she's at a party, she eats something that she's allergic to, and I think from there you think, okay, well something's gonna go down with her choking and her husband, her brother's gonna be at fault. No, they get to the car. Okay, well some they're gonna get into a car accident together, and then no, it's actually she sticks her head out and she gets beheaded. So I think the way that scene plays out 
out is pretty, like, you know, it keeps you on your toes. Well, it does, and it speaks to something about the movie as a whole. I mean, cagey when I talk about it, because even in writing about it, I haven't totally resolved, like, my level of, I guess, like, affection or respect for this movie, mm -hmm. which is not nil. Right. But it's certainly not as high as, as some other people's. Yeah. Like, the film is perched on this razor's edge between, like, it's quite intense and effective, and it's also ridiculous. Mm hmm Right? Yeah. And sometimes when you watch horror movies, because the goalposts move around, you know, sometimes you watch a horror movie and you're like, oh, you know, like something like It Comes at Night. Like, this is quite drab and realistic and safe, and it doesn't go for it. Right. So at least Hereditary goes for it. Right. On the other hand, I felt like in... And bringing the mess into that controlled space mm. and in really kind of abandoning any pretense of psychological realism for this kind of like gory schlock, right. I, I, I felt disappointed. And in that, that scene? No, just in the oh. film. Oh, in the film, okay. In, in, in the film. I mean, I'm not trying to be con contrarian. Like, I'm trying to be fair. I really right. like horror films. Yeah. I just, and, and ones that work are rare. Yeah. Even in the last, let's say, 20 or 25 minutes of the movie, which really do go for it yeah, in yeah. terms of killing people off and in terms of extreme imagery and gore and also just, you know, really manifesting the supernatural beyond any shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. I, I, I found myself also irritated by that. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell if it's because I, I thought what had led up to that was somehow subtler or better mm -hmm. or if I felt like it exposed how kind of cluttered and manipulative and deterministic and jerry-rigged everything before it yeah. was. Well, I think by the last 25 minutes of the movie, I had already felt betrayed by the movie. And at that point, I was just like, well, you're just throwing a bunch of like stuff that I've seen in The Witch. I've seen it all in here. You're throwing it, You're throwing everything at the screen at this, that point. Well, and this is an interesting place. Maybe, I mean, still, I think there's things to say about the movie on its own terms, but mm. we can bring influences into it, which mm -hmm. is that like this, this filmmaker, Ari Aster, by his own admission, and also just if you have eyes, you know, yeah. he's... He's he's riffing on things, mm -hmm. you know. Don't I mean, look now. Don't look now. I mean, it's the 50th anniversary today as we're recording this podcast of Rosemary's mm -hmm. Baby. Right. Which I think casts a pretty long shadow. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, when you're talking about, like, Rosemary's Baby or The Shining or in a more modern, a more modern context, like even The Blair Witch Project or something, like, everyone who makes these movies has seen those movies. Right. And there are far worse movies in many ways to reference. They're, they endure for a reason. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the, the Rosemary's Baby thing in this movie, which is that there's this kind of like everyday cult of witches, <laughs> you know, who like live in nursing homes and buy supplies at the paint store and have apartments and stuff. I mean, yeah. that's derived from Ira Levin and Roman Polanski. Right. They got there first. Yeah. And if you want to have that in a movie, it's there. I would say that Kill List, Ben Wheatley's film, also takes that idea of an everyday cult from Rosemary's Baby. The difference is that with Kill List, I think what it does with it in the end, I can only think back to Kill List. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I watch Hereditary, I'm not just thinking of Rosemary's Baby for the general motif. Yeah. I'm also thinking of Kill List for a couple things that feel directly stolen. Mm -hmm. and, in the case, and, and, and in Hereditary, I don't feel that it really transcends. Yeah. It's, it's influence. It's, it's borrowings. Not yeah. not fully. Yeah, no, not at all. I don't, I mean, I actually, I mean, I think I said this uh, to someone else. It's like, this is a movie that I think is really good at wielding those influences, but it never, ever becomes its own thing. Right. Well, to give it credit, what it's trying to do, mm -hmm. I shouldn't even say trying, I mean, that's condescending, like what it's doing yeah. 
is suggesting, I think, within the reality of the film that maybe it's not a story about a, a, a family that has mental health issues. Mm. That in retrospect, everything that Annie talks about, about her mom's strange behavior and dementia and the other suicide attempts in her family and even her own mm. fears about her children, that, you know, that, that her grandmother was trying to usurp them from her, right. you know, that they're based in a kind of like the unseen supernatural truth right that you know the issue isn't that her mom was a horrible person the issue is that her mom was a horrible person because she was a witch <laughs> and yeah. like like not a figurative witch but a, a literal one yeah and so instead of a movie that sort of starts out by being about mental illness and then and and inherited grief and then becomes about ghouls yeah it's that the ghouls have been there all along right right yeah and there's something kind of shapely and elegant about that when you Say it. Mm. I mean, I'm just trying to give credit where it's due. Right. And yet. <laughs> and yet. Well, and, 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 and yet, I find, I found, I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording. It's very crowded. Mm -hmm. And it requires a lot of exposition dump. Right. When you say very crowded, because there's a lot more than just intergenerational trauma and all that stuff that's going on in this movie. This movie is borrowing ideas from all of those influences and trying to pack them into one movie. Yeah, well, it, it is ideas from influences, but also I think just trying to have ideas about about families and mm -hmm. about parenting and about you know like why are teenagers secretive and clandestine? Like, mm -hmm. what do they not want to share with their parents? I mean, the one thing that's taboo that the movie gets at, I think, in, in some ways, it's one of the better scenes in the movie when Annie and her son Peter, played by Alex Wolf, who really mm -hmm. does have a great face. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand how he's supposed to be Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne's <laughs> kid. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, he looks a little Indian, right? Yeah, yeah. But when they have this big argument at the dinner table, the taboo thing that comes up is the same thing that the Babadook treated at great length, mm. which is the idea of like, what if you are a parent and you kind of hate your kid? Mm -hmm. I mean, both movies give really melodramatic reasons, right? right. right? Having to do with, with actually car accident death. <laughs> you know, in the Babadook, it's a dad died in a car accident. Yeah, and yeah. and in, in Hereditary, it's that Charlie died in a car accident when Peter was driving the car, but that, you know, Seeing a parent like really hate their child is hard to watch, right? And I think it's hard to watch for anyone because we've all been someone's kid, yeah, yeah. and some of us are parents. Yeah. So, can I just? I feel like that is the one scene, that dinner table scene, where I actually felt something. I think it's. I think it's a brilliantly acted yeah. scene, and yeah, because what it's dredging up in some ways takes leave of the ghost stuff, right, and the witchcraft stuff. Which is ideally what this movie would do, which is it would make you forget about that stuff at least as long as the characters didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And then only when the characters like really become aware of it in the second half, when Colette meets the character played by Anne Dowd and the spiritualist stuff, you know, then, then it would really bring it to the fore. But of course, it's a movie that has to keep showing us mm -hmm. around the edges, pretty much from the first second of the movie, right. that there's something else going on. Right. But of course, also the way the movie's being packaged and the kind of pull quotes that it has in the campaign, you know you're watching a horror movie. And I mean, it's a fallacy that like any movie can really fully surprise you at this point because right. if it's a if it's distributed <laughs> by somebody they're going to tell you what the movie is and what? so then what it becomes a question of is actually not can you get into hereditary and be surprised by it it becomes yeah. the opposite it's like does this movie that you go see live up to the almost impossible hype yeah. that has compelled you to see it right and I think it's fascinating. I don't put much stock in cinema score. I think that it's, you know, like when people last year were talking about, you know, like Mother getting the worst cinema score of all time. I don't like Mother, but like 
I also don't think audiences are necessarily in that sample size hugely smart. Yeah. So Mother getting a bad cinema score, who cares? Yeah. Hereditary getting a bad cinema score, who cares? But it is interesting yeah. for film to rate that high on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Maybe too high. That's what I'm saying. Isn't the Rotten Tomatoes score something that we shouldn't be putting that much credit into as well? Well, I mean, best not to put credit into anything. <laughs> into but, these but, collated scores and shit. But, you know, yeah. this movie is coming out around the same time of year and with the same festival hype behind it that Get Out did. Mm. And Get Out is a movie that we haven't really mentioned in the context of Hereditary, but that's because one of the things about Get Out, I was talking about this with a, a, a colleague, I was messaging with him, um, and what he said was really true. Whatever you think of Get Out, whatever you think of it, you think it's overrated, you think its metaphors are, 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 are forced, mm. it doesn't condescend to being a horror film. Like mm. It's not a spoof, and it doesn't pretend that it's more within the film's running time. Right, right, right. People have made it into a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've made it into a symbol of an era. They've made it into a symbol of the Trump era. They've, they've The sunken place has become this amazing metaphor, all of which, to me, I'm happy about, because I, I, I basically like Get Out. Yeah. But while you're watching Get Out... It's pretty unambiguously like a B movie genre mm-hmm. film. Uh, heretic- oh, proudly, and pr- yeah, proudly, and I think in a kind of un, in an untortured way. Mm-hmm. I think it accesses serious stuff, but like, it's got just like a pretty fun, pleasurable, scary, not goofy exactly, mm-hmm. but like, it's an enjoyable film. Yeah, and Hereditary, I think, is very bound up in trying to be torturous and difficult mm-hmm. and upsetting and unsettling, which is also well within bounds for the horror tradition. Right. But it also, to, to use a Simpsons quote that I think always applies to about five or ten films a year, it reeks of effort. Right, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Well, it can, I mean, because it wants to be, or I mean, I think we've heard it say, like it wants to be a drama first yeah. and a horror movie after that, or well, if it the, wants to be a horror well, movie well, at all. Yeah, well, that's what the filmmaker is saying. Yeah. So, but it, and, and, and my eyes rolled so far back into their head, I thought that they were going to fall out when I was reading and be like, we didn't think we were making a horror movie. I mean, with all respect, Ari Aster, like, yeah. talented guy, but like, come on. Your, your influences are the shining carry. <laughs> yeah, you didn't think you were making a horror and your movie. Fa- and your family material is on the one hand too generic and vague, and on the other hand too sort of like viciously convoluted for mm-hmm. me to, 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 to believe that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, this movie worked better for me as a tech, like a, a superbly crafted horror movie than it did as a family melodrama, but yet it prioritizes the family melodrama. And the reason the family melodrama doesn't work for me as the, from the beginning is because I felt like a lot of those mechanics or a lot of the problems that the family has later on, I didn't buy from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, and starting off with that scene, I mean, I was telling you this earlier, it's, I didn't buy... The, 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 the big, like, inciting event is the child getting beheaded. You didn't believe that a mom would send their kid to a party To a like teenager's that. party. I mean, we, we, just, we were talking about how she controls everything, how she has a dollhouse, and she knows her child is allergic to things, and she knows her child is a social member. But for a woman that has this much control and that is wary and paranoid about all these different things, why would you send your child out to a teenage party? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't disagree. And, yeah. there's, and there's other things, too. I mean... The idea that they wouldn't notice a body in the attic, but again, then you start getting into that oh, realm right. of that realm of film criticism that I don't like, which yeah. is this kind of like note, this kind of bookkeeping inventory of logic. It's just that yeah. in a really great horror movie, you don't think of those things at all. Mm-hmm. 
like you know kill list which again i i i really really resent the lifting of not the basic ending of the movie but just of this deliberate bit of staging with the crowning of a mm-hmm. kind of antichrist yeah, yeah. figure which i think is is really similar into the two and we also talked about the similarities yeah. to to the end of the witch which we can get into in a minute cause yeah. we're gonna talk about the witch you should but, describe the kill list scene yeah well i mean in kill well don't want to make a podcast about kill list there's a whole i have a whole book on that but like <laughs> you know in, i guess I was gonna you say, wrote the book on that i, I forgot about that for a second but in but in kill list i guess there's a social and cultural and national context that i think is more interesting than the logic of the cult mm-hmm. right so kill list kind of does this shape-shifting thing a bit like hereditary is trying to do where mm-hmm. it starts as a really dysfunctional domestic film mm-hmm. it has this kind of long passage in the middle where it's a hitman film which mm-hmm. obviously hereditary doesn't do right and then it comes into this occult scenario where you see that underneath all of the stuff there's been this kind of evil force that finally kind of instrumentalized neil maskell's character and basically used him to kill all these people right and applauding him for it and at the end of hereditary similarly we sort of find that the dead grandmother has been desperately trying to kind of make herself manifest in her family's life yeah you know she's she skipped the generation she's not trying to possess her daughter she's trying to possess the the kids and that's yeah. where the idea of evil being passed on is thing about kill list is in a way the ending makes less sense narratively but i feel it mm-hmm. i feel how fucking horrible it is that this guy has been manipulated into murdering his wife and child mm-hmm. talk about again the ruthlessness of, of killing a kid here it's where the movie ends yeah and the idea that he would be applauded for it by the members of this cult, it's just so upsetting. Yeah. There's like a plan that's been fulfilled, but it's not just about the character. There's something larger, I think it says, about men and masculinity and this culture of mercenary self, self selfishness. Mm. You know, at the end of Hereditary, we're supposed to think that Ellen, or this demon inside her, you know, this demon Paimon, you know, <laughs> has been reborn and and you know in the form of this kid and like i get the metaphor that he's a damaged teenager so he's vulnerable to it Mm. that his mother's greatest fear has come true which is that it's going to go on down the family line right but the staging is kind of so solemn and so overreaching that not only did i not feel it i I was just like right on the verge of laughing at it yeah and not that like uncomfortable laughter of like, oh man, what do I do with this? I'm just like, this is too much, man. Yeah. You know, you you I again I I like that he's going for it. Yeah. But it's a lot. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, again, I I checked out long before that moment yeah. itself because and, I mean and, because of everything. And and it's also maybe too. I mean, this is where you start getting into the idea of hype again because I do yeah. want to talk about a twenty four and yeah. distribution and well, elevated horror and all that, but but you have these pull quotes that are not the movie's fault mm. where you have people saying, you know, scariest movie since the exorcist, there are things here you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. So I was very kind of steeled for that when I sat to watch it. Well, I'll give the can't unsee thing a little credit because Millie Shapiro's head collecting thing. I mean, that's I, an I image mean, that'll sear. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and sure. I mean, and there's other, I mean, there's others that I would cite, but at the same time, in, if, if we're doing this like a nutritional value box on, <laughs> on, a, on a box of cereal or yeah. something, I don't really think like the, the nutritional elements in this movie are hugely different than like The Conjuring no. or a Bloomhouse film. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think there's going to be some viewers who, when you have 
as well lit as it is, you know, when you have like Tony Collette like scuttling around the walls and levitating and stuff, in a way it kind of breaks the tension. Yeah. I know not everyone's going to feel that way. Like, it's very easy to say this if you're not someone who scares easily. I know that there's people, I've spoken to them, they've texted me, they're like, right. this movie fucked me up. I'm right. really scared. I couldn't watch this. I watched this through my hands. All of which is totally fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't hold that against anyone. But I think for people who really have a steady diet of horror movies, yeah. I don't think that stuff's really that, really that remarkable. No, because the scarier stuff is the stuff you can't nail down. And once you see Tony Collette scaling the wall, yeah. it's over. <laughs> like, well, the way that they use focus and lighting to introduce her right. in the corner of the room is quite good. Yeah, That's yeah. the skill that you're talking about. Exactly. But the thing itself is kind of is 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 kind of silly. You know, there were tweets by a critic who, you know, obviously I read and admire even if I don't always agree with his taste. He didn't review the film, but Richard Brody was tweeting about how there's no images in the film there's nothing that really stays and i thought about that because i thought well how can that be how can i agree with him if i would say first and foremost that it's well crafted mm -hmm. it is well crafted but aside from the few close-ups of people reacting in terror which mm -hmm. it does do very well yeah. i actually don't think that there are staging or compositional things in this movie that are really indelible we're we talking about like iconic shots, like Carrie drenched in blood kind of deal. Well, and by the, I mean, I mean the whole like one perfect shot approach to criticism is dumb too. Like, right. Movies aren't paintings, and even if they are, that's not the way you look at them. Yeah. I just mean that. I think the movie has a sophisticated visual sense, and it's well made. But like, this is not a film that really, truly, for me, lodged in that place mm -hmm. where like the way it's seen or the eye of the filmmaker like. I can't get it out of my head. Right, right, yeah. You know, for me, Rosemary's Baby does that, the way mm -hmm. that the camera always seems to be craning to see something just out of frame because yeah. that's how Rosemary feels. Or the master shot elegance of The Shining, or even the way, you know, a film that never got the acclaim that something like this is getting because it was distributed just as a as a kind of, you know, genre film. But, like, even the way that Bernard Rose makes Candyman, I think, mm -hmm. has a, a real palpable way of seeing in it can I, that is that is uncanny and, yeah. and upsetting. I don't feel that in Hereditary. Can I bring a, a movie, like a recent movie that I was thinking, actually I enjoyed this better, Unfriended. Have you seen that one? Oh, I, I like Unfriended yeah. a lot. But even just the image of the girl that you think is, like the, you think the, fr the screen froze, but then you see a cell phone dangling on the side and stuff. Yeah. That is probably my favorite horror shot <laughs> in the last five years. Well, I, I, I mean, Unfriended could be a whole other, a whole other <laughs> podcast. But, but it's more genuine than a movie like this. Well, we might well, we might say about Unfriended or about some of the the stuff that's come out that's done ast astonishingly well, like films like Annabelle or some of the mm. other Bloomhouse films. Is like they are of a in a fashion like somewhat unpretentious mm -hmm. and and kind of like directed at an audience that's just going to them for the stuff. Yeah, you know, like give me the stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, her give me the stuff. <laughs> and you know, her, her Hereditary is a weird mix. Mm -hmm. Because it has this festival pedigree, it has this critical pedigree. It's done quite well mm. commercially, yeah. relative to cost, so it has the feeling of a hit. Yeah. But then this is all bound up, at least for some certain people in film culture, in this acknowledgement and resentment or ambivalence towards generally the idea of elevated horror, mm -hmm. the idea that like this disreputable genre has now been arted up. And the willingness and enthusiasm of A24 in particular as a distributor to buy or develop or make those kinds of movies 
and lean into that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's not the only thing A24 does. Right. But when you go through titles, and I would even say, even though they're not horror films, that a film like Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here right. fits into that. Yeah. It's that idea of like... Elevated vigilante movie. Elevated genre. Right. You know, is a maybe better catch-all than yeah. kind of elevated horror. And boy, there are some people who just, the, that phrase, much less the movies, just rubs them so the wrong way. And I identify with it, even if I can't really rationally say that it's fair. Right. Like The Witch, the Bob Eggers movie. I like The Witch. I wrote about The Witch for Cineast, which is not online, but in right. print. I admire, again, its influences. Mm-hmm. But I like its fairy tale architecture. I like its historical context. It's a good film. I actually would have probably put it on my, my 10 best. And yet, when people tell me they're annoyed by it, right. by its ad campaign, by its smartness, by its formalism, I get it. Right. I, I totally get it without agreeing. Same way when people say this about It Comes at Night. Same way when people say this about The Babadook. There's a pretense to these films. Can Are they all A24? I don't think Babadook was, but the others okay. I mentioned all... Because, I mean, It are. Comes at Night, Babadook, these oh, are all movies that I would like, and like and, the, that and, I would lump Hereditary into this yeah, circle. and it follows as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But, th- see, these are movies that... I mean, I guess the idea of elevated horror is this idea that, you know, we're selling melodrama first or we're selling some kind of drama first and the horror comes in after it. And also we're wearing our influences. Well, and the third thing that it is is that just generally mid-budget films for adults have kind of disappeared. Right. And so it's weird that they've now been kind of colonized by by horror, which is always supposed to be a disreputable teen genre. You know, like... Other than big gestures like The Shining, I mean, the 80s horror belonged to, like, teenagers or shut-ins, and mm-hmm. in the 90s it was really revitalized for teenagers by the Scream movies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the idea now that horror somehow becomes serious. I mean, this all goes back to Jordan Peele, too, where Peele, in all those interviews, and this is where I don't think the movie is annoying in this way. I thought this was a bit annoying, where mm-hmm. he's like, you know, it's a social thriller, and my, you know, I mean, I don't know what... I mean, by that standard, every movie is a social thriller. I mean, every <laughs> I mean, every movie to some extent is about the society at the time that it's made. Well, I'll give Peel some credit there because I mean, as much as Get Out like is shaped like a horror movie, it wasn't a scary movie. No, it was more fun and thrilling. Yeah, than and, it, and also, by the way, like if he says Get Out is meant as a social thriller, he's right because he made it and he knows what he's doing. Right, right. I, I just meant that. It, it activates this tendency in criticism where people will sort of, you know, be like, well, you know, every movie is now Night of the Living Dead. I mean, I have a joke that I've told before, and, and I'm proud of this joke, which is that I want one day a filmmaker to actually go to the trouble of, like, researching and dramatizing a really specific subject, like, say, a housing shortage. Right, right. And then, you know, she can be interviewed. Someone will say to the filmmaker, you know, I, I really liked your film. And she can say, my movie is a metaphor for zombies, you idiots. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, I mean this, this, this thing that Romero and kind of Rosemary's Baby and right. a few other films, it, it gave us this language, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, kind of gave us this language, which is like, ah, but don't you see the, the disreputable violent horror movie that you think you're above is actually the only way to apprehend society. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that even if, like, Texas Chainsaw and Night of the Living Dead didn't have that kind of praise when they came out, it happened pretty quickly. Right. In the early 80s or, or the early 90s, that kind of academicization of, of writing about horror films. So now you have a lot of filmmakers who kind of lean into that mm. and, like, it, it's, 
it's not it, it, it's not unconscious mm-hmm. you know George Romero rest in peace wonderful guy and a major artist and all that like I will believe to my dying or my undead day that all the stuff in Night of the Living Dead that's re- resonant about civil rights in Vietnam not that he didn't mean it right right but he didn't sit there and sketch it out the way he did 30 years later right, when he's right. making Land of the Dead. Right, right, right. Where he yeah, has exactly. to like live up to that reputation of, like, I'm a social commentator. Mm-hmm. And I guess kind of one of the nice things about Hereditary is that it keeps it within the family. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's also what limits it. Well, I mean, because what we're talking about here is new filmmakers who... I mean, in a way, I want to just call them, like, film school filmmakers who are imitating what, like, film critics wrote about those movies yeah. as, and putting them on screen. But, but, in, but in that sense, this, this cohort are not hugely different from the generation we talked about the last time I was here when we, when we talked about Phantom Thread. I mean, that's maybe not people mm. who are steeped in horror, but I mean, the history of filmmaking is a history of, of influence right. and illusion and referring back. And even people with truly original vision. Right, right. You know, I mean, one of the things about, you know, and again, this could really digress here but you know one of the things that I've always thought about Brian De Palma and and what Chris Dumas wrote in his book on De Palma is that it's not that De Palma rips off Hitchcock it's that De Palma acknowledges that Hitchcock came first and if you're going to work in the thriller genre to pretend that he didn't would actually be to steal and rip off in a way he makes his borrowing so explicit because he's like well you know what there's really nothing else to do so I will get the fact that you and I and everyone have seen these movies kind of out of the way, yeah. and now let's look at what I do with them. Right. You could argue that there's certain elevated horror, elevated genre movies that I think use those references similarly. I, again, not to beat a dead horse, but like that's what's thrilling to me about Kill List, mm-hmm. which is you can see it, don't look now in it. You can see the Wicker Man in it. Mm-hmm. You can see the Devils and some other movies in it. But where it ends up is totally its own thing, yeah. at least for me. I did not feel that way about It Follows. Certainly didn't feel that way about The Babadook, mm-hmm. which to me is the one really overrated film from this group. And I feel I'm bad. actually agreeing with you on yeah. that one. And I sure. feel bad because she's a smart director, Jennifer Kent, and, yeah. and it's a good lead performance. But there's something about that film that is so cloistered and claustrophobic and obvious and there's such a one-to-one ratio yeah. in terms of what it's about but do you think the reason you don't put it follows into like you don't, you're not being as hard on it, it follows if the babadook is again the goalpost moved it follows doesn't have as as high pretensions as the babadook does because it doesn't have that melodramatic like it's a well, it's you know it's a mother son intergenerational trauma story first when uh my friend who, who you follow on Twitter too, my friend Manuela, when she was getting ready for Cannes this year, mm. she watched It Follows. We talk about movies a lot. Mm. And we were texting about It Follows and it was really funny because she didn't like the film and she yeah. wrote a really good review of David Robert Mitchell's new film, Under the Silver Lake, which right. even though I haven't seen, I'm like, this is a convincing pan. Although everyone at Cannes, there were other good pieces about it from Cannes. Anyway, yeah. my point is, we're talking about It Follows, she's like, it just, the metaphor doesn't make sense at all. Uh-huh. And I'd been a while since I'd seen the film and in, in talking to her about it and then just thinking about it and going back and reading what some critics had said, even Jason Anderson and CinemaScope, I'm like, this is true. Right. You know, the, the thing about it follows is as casual and low-key and kind of unaffected and natural as its teenage world is, what it's actually trying to be about, yeah. really incoherent. <laughs> and not the incoherence of like, 
oh, it's weird and, and unresolved and how do you how do you even process this? It's so scary. It's just like, this kind of just doesn't work. Right. The Babadook makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, that's kind of what's wrong with each movie. Right. And, and it follows. It's a bit too vaporous and vague and chancy, but it may be a little scarier because you can't quite reconcile it. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Babadook, it's smart, and, the, and Jennifer Kent deserves credit for the script, but I just felt so... Um, it was a bad. It was a bad viewing for me. Like I felt kind of above it. I was like, the well, things that you are trying to do to scare me here, I've got you. I, I see them coming, yeah, yeah. and it's just I'm not feeling it. You know, I mean, the horror movie that I wrote about, which is an old film now, it's ten years old, but I wrote about it around Halloween last year. And I wouldn't group it with these movies, but you know, this is maybe something to plug on this podcast for anyone who's listened for this long. There's this Australian film called Lake Mungo, which. It might just be my taste, but like that's a horror movie that is just steeped in a kind of melancholy and a sense of loss within a family. And it's about the death of a, a child, although not a child, it's a teenage girl in this mm-hmm. case, and about how the family copes with that. It's almost like they're trying to will her back into existence. Like the son is setting up video cameras in the hope of like getting photos of her haunting the house. Mm-hmm. The parents think that they see her. And it's it's about something so sad, which is that they want to be haunted, yeah, yeah. you know? And, I mean, where it goes from there, I, w- I won't spoil, but it goes to places, too, that are, like, very shivery and scary and unexpected, and the narrative widens without ever breaking the found footage conceit. It's one of the only movies where the found footage thing and the multiple image source thing, I think, is really elegant instead of crowded. Mm-hmm. And that's a film that... This film, Lake Mungo, that... It's also crowded, and it's also cluttered, but it's filled with these feelings. And, and Hereditary, I can only speak for myself, it to me is filled with really talented actors who 90% of the time are approximating those feelings, trying to have those feelings, trying mm. to make me have them. But they just register to me as a kind of acted hysteria. Mm. It did not get into my skin. It did not get get into my heart. It, it did not leave the theater sitting on my shoulder the way like Kill List did, or, right. or 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 other recent horror movies did. I mean, even The Witch that I didn't find that scary. I mm. found myself thinking about its ending, and that question we were talking about this before we recorded about whether the Anna Anya Taylor Joy character, if she really has any agency in choosing evil and witchcraft, or if she's been manipulated into it by the devil. But either way, she has this sense of freedom or liberation at the end which is like quite ecstatic yeah. and the last images of the witch stay with me yeah. maybe because of the witch really saves its ridiculousness <laughs> right, right. for when it needs it yeah I mean I was saying earlier and now you made me rethink it that the only problem because yeah, I, I really like the witch I think the, my only problem initially was that it lasted 10 seconds too long but you then kind of sold me on how that last image works as well, a mirror image, right? Well, and I, I think that I think Robert Eggers. I mean, Ari Aster's a smart guy, but I, whenever I think of the witch, I I just think like Robert Eggers, smart mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. You know the, the way that that movie's lit, the way that that movie's told, the way that that movie's really precise about its borrowings, mm-hmm. because when it does The Shining yeah. with the woman in the house out there, it's not doing The Shining; it's doing the Bruno Bettelheim fairy tale 
stuff that Kubrick was working with with The Shining. Like right. it's not a reference to The Shining; it's a reference to The Shining's source material. Right, right. So it subsumes The Shining into it. So it's not just a straight Shining homage. It's like we are dealing with the same literary, psychological um, dimension that Kubrick added because mm. none of that stuff's in the Stephen King novel. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the witch, some people might say it's a little too smart for its own good. Like, it's a little cold and it's mm-hmm. a little formal. But, like, I, I certainly responded to it more than hereditary. I didn't find it cold at all. I mean, here's the thing about The Witch. I mean, when you watch it, I mean, yes, I felt the similarities to The Shining. But it still feels like its own movie. Yeah. Like, it feels like it's in its own world. It's building its own world. It feels like its scares are genuine. Like, I didn't, I mean, yes, I mean, certain shots well, will could... remind me to the walking around the house in The Shining, but... Well, and it's rooted in that kind of historical context of Puritanism and the discovery yeah. of America. So there's all these, all these, you know, whether it's like Nathaniel uh, Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown or Shyamalan's The Village or even The Blair Witch Project, right. which it doesn't show you any of that stuff, but is the same basic idea of like America is old and weird <laughs> and there are dangerous things out there that yeah. can kind of you know, consume you. I mean, in The Witch, in some ways, the characters are punished for being old-fashioned. In The Blair Witch Project, they're punished for not being traditional enough. Right, they're right. city kids with their cameras. And that's that's what links it to, to Texas Chainsaw, which has always been, to me, a really great social satire of, like, if you're city kids, like, fucking shut up. <laughs> you know, don't make fun of the locals and don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't go looking around a house where you're not, you know, where, 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 you know, where you're not welcome. I guess, you know, like, really glib thing to say is I fully doubt, I doubt this about The Witch, but I certainly doubt it about Hereditary or It Comes at Night. Like, I don't think that these will be their own reference points mm-hmm. in 40 years, the way that Rosemary's Baby and Texas Chainsaw and The Shining are now. Right, right, right. Like, I don't think any of these movies probably have enough of their own center of gravity mm. that in 40 years people will be like, oh, man, that movie's doing Hereditary. At the same time, I'm sure in the next few years, we will get a bunch of hereditary-ish horror movies. Because it did well. Because it did well, and because it seems like a kind of major thing. Well, are we jumping the gun here and saying it did well? It did well, I I didn't look at the box office numbers, but it did well in limited release. It did very well. I I I actually think it's one of A24's bigger Uh, openings. Wow. And and, and to talk about A24 for a second, not to... No, no. Not not to get either of us in trouble talking about a distributor, (laughs) but... You know, they they are in some ways, I think, the source of a certain enmity towards this movie that I see on social media, a dislike of this movie, mm. having to do with the fact that people either feel burned by this distributor overhyping its own product or selling its own product. Right. In a way that, in a way, to some people, they are victims of their own success. Right. right. I teach this class at U of T about. Um, economics and film and the, one of the assignments is students choose a North American distributor an independent one and profile it mm-hmm. and the last two or three years statistically like <laughs> you know half the kids in a class of 40 choose A24 right and I, I have to give some credit to that because these are second or third or fourth year film students and they choose A24 because they recognize them as the name attached to a lot of the kind of movies that they like there's a brand people recognize the brand they recognize the brand, but they also recognize the movies that mm. that are part of that brand. They want to write about the company that put out Spring Breakers, right. or they want to write about the company that put out Moonlight. I mean, there's and and, and respect. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's 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 something to be said about a two a twenty four's kind of like 
people hating them being a bit of a, a cliche. You know, you can be annoyed with certain campaigns or certain tweets. You can be annoyed with certain critics who seem to be shilling for them. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, at, at the same time, if they give you something so strong to react against, it's because they kind of know what they're doing. Right. And while certainly I hope it's come through in this podcast that, I mean, neither of us are super fans of Hereditary and I'm not, mm. I think there's something kind of silly about reviewing the distributor. Yeah, yeah, no. I think, I think, but, there's, I think there's enough to criticize in the movie yeah. that you don't have to go to this level of kind of like, well, if A24 is putting it out, it must be overrated crap. But I'm, I'm confused by... I mean, because like, I, I got the idea that you want to talk about this, but I'm, I, I didn't hear the criticism towards A24. Like, I mean, in terms of well, their marketing for this movie. Cause, well, the, well, the, I mean, well, the, well, the criticism may be a very kind of limited... Because mm-hmm. you know, I don't to, think the people who are rushing to see it in theaters know that it's an A24 movie. No, and, and the people, according to CinemaScore, who are rushing to see it in theaters <laughs> hate the movie. Right. They probably feel, you know, duped into seeing it. Yeah. But... You know, and here again, we're we're talking about different little subsets of film culture, online yeah. film culture. But um, you know, there's a this again. This is around that idea of prestige. I think that there are a lot of people who consider themselves genre movie fans, horror movie fans, whether they're fans or scholars or buffs or appreciators or some mix of them. Yeah. What they really resent is this idea that horror is being elevated in the first place. That yeah. it, it that it takes its pride and its urgency and its necessity from being subterranean right, right, yeah. and disreputable yeah. and antisocial. It's not supposed to get Oscar nominations. What's that it, term that was floating about a couple of years ago? Vulgar o-tourism? Is, oh, that, is, this, no, is this what we're edit, getting into? Edit that all out, God. <laughs> yeah, like, um, but, but I mean, you know, the, the comparisons that people are making to The Exorcist are interesting to me only insofar as The Exorcist, you know, got... 10 Oscar nominations Mm -hmm. and was released on Christmas by a big studio, Warner Brothers. And in some ways, if it had been in Italian (laughs) and had the exact same content, it would have been X-rated. Right, right. And people would literally not have been caught dead seeing it. But because it had this kind of big seal of approval and because the MPAA somehow gave a movie where a girl masturbates with a crucifix and tells Jesus to fuck himself and, and, and you know, just hideous, you know, sexual violence and, and innuendo, you know, it somehow got an R rating. Yeah. It, you know, it becomes a Best Picture nominee for, for the Oscars. And, this now, and, and again, this isn't about the exorcist's quality. It's just about a certain standard that got set there, which right. is like as transgressive and boundary-pushing as it is, that was a movie for the whole family. Yeah. <laughs> and my... My parents and my friends' parents, my wife's parents and people of a certain age, of course they saw The Exorcist. You know, they wouldn't necessarily have seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. My guess is they may not have seen Last House on the Left. My guess is that if you sat them down now in front of, I mean, name it, you know, you sat them down now in front of The Human Centipede or Cargo <laughs> or, or even Kill List, they'd probably be bothered by it. Right. Or it wouldn't be their first choice. But... You know, The Exorcist was elevated horror uh-huh. insofar as regular people felt compelled to pay money to go see it and it lifted it out of the genre ghetto. Mm. And in the 70s, you saw a lot of movies that, you know, like The Omen and, and Burnt Offerings and stuff and, and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and, and, and even The Changeling with George C. Scott where it's like big stars and 
respectability. Right, right. You know? Well, I mean, I guess so that's what you're saying with A24 and its marketing team and stuff. It's putting it out to people that were never suspecting this kind of movie. Yeah, while retaining a kind of plucky, edgy, mm-hmm. you know, we're not your mom and dad's distributor and right. this isn't your mom and dad's horror movie. I mean, the reason I think Hereditary warrants comparisons to The Exorcist, and I will say it warrants comparisons to The Exorcist, does reside in the fact that it, and I'm, I'm repeating myself, but like that it goes for it. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. If the film is going to have any value or any staying power, it it resides in those images of... I mean, we're spoiling the whole movie, so why not? <laughs> you know? I mean, it resides in those images of a young girl being decapitated or of Toni Collette decapitating herself mm-hmm. with razor wire or of a man on fire or, you know... Those are not half measures, you know? Those are not the kind of things that you can kind of take or leave in, in terms of artistic choices that you're making. Like, that's pretty savage stuff. Yeah. I don't necessarily think, as I said, that the staging really transcends similar things in movies like The Conjuring or, or, or Insidious. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the idea of like a family that's been haunted, I mean, that's in Insidious as well. I really mm-hmm. like the first Insidious. I'm trying to remember which one Insidious is. It's is the, that where uh, family's with, being invaded? Yeah, well, that's... Or the, a dinner party? Well, it's the one with um, Patrick Wilson before he was recast in The Conjuring as the right. real guy. Yeah. He's married to, um, oh, what's her name? I'm just tired. She's so funny. She's in Bridesmaids and Spy um, and oh, Neighbors. Uh, shit. Um, I want to say mm-hmm. Rachel. Should no, no. Look it's, it up? no. You, you, the British one. Rose Byrne. Rose Byrne, that's it. They're married to Rose Byrne and they're, they've got this like weird... You know, red and black faced demon haunting them, but you find it at the end that that the Wilson character is kind of like haunted and possessed by this old woman spirit that it's been him all along. Fuck and yeah. I mean, it's done in a very kind of cartoony way, right, right? Because James Wan has this great EC Comics kind of cheesiness to his horror, but yeah. like I kind of like that. Yeah, I'm actually vi- I'm, I'm I'm very fond of of those films. Can I... Okay, so I don't know if I've seen Insidious. But then, I mean, James Wan's the same guy that made Saw, right? Yeah. Well, that's well, that's what he started as. Okay. He, he, he gets, I think, too much credit and flack for the whole torture porn thing because I think it's overstated that that's what the first Saw is and no, the hostile sequels are hostile. Hostel's the, 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 the 21st century inception point for that. Right. But then after that, I mean, Wan makes things that I think... <laughs> In some ways, I mean, and this is leaving aside his stuff with Fast and Furious and whatever. I just yeah. think that, you know, Juan in some ways is very, very kind of old school. And there's something kind of sweet about the things he finds scary, like goofy clowns and music yeah. boxes and <laughs> stuff. It's, it's likable. Well, you know, there's something, I mean, the reason I'm bringing up Saw, though, is, I mean, it's interesting. Because I remember my initial, the first Saw, my initial problem was with it was, this is a movie that's borrowing from Seven borrowing from Usual Suspects, borrowing, and it's putting it all together as a horror movie. But then even that worked on its own terms still, even though it's borrowing all these things. Pretty, it still became its own thing. Pretty much. I mean, it came up with its own emblem in the little puppet on the trike, and mm-hmm. it came up with its own ver- version on the, seven ser- the, the seven-ish serial killer, you know, yeah. with Jigsaw as a kind of an inheritor of John Doe and Hannibal Lecter. Like, I've not followed the franchise, which, to no. its credit, has some of the most, like, Baroque narrative choices like in recent mainstream cinema like there's sequels I think in this movie that actually take place parallel to events of the previous film like the I, timeline's really <laughs> if you can follow it yeah I know it's really complicated 
those films or the Conjuring films or Insidious or Annabelle or even the kind of, um, you know, the, the even cheesier stuff that's, I mean, unfriended but also really teen-centered horror like Don't Breathe or Lights Out or, mm-hmm. or, or Truth or Dare. I mean, that's the stuff that implicitly or explicitly hereditary in terms of its filmmakers' intentions and in terms of its distributors' intentions and in terms of its critical reception, that's what it's supposed to be elevated above. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about elevated horror, some of it is in an industrial context where it's like, this is better than that. This Mm. is more than that. This is significant in a way that that stuff isn't. Mm. And And does that invite us to be harsher about it? I mean, that's what, like, I mean, the goalposts. Obviously, for some critics, it's an invitation to, to really rhapsodize about it and feel good about the fact that, you know, a genre movie could get Oscar nominations. <laughs> I mean, last year you, we read eight hundred versions of that article about Get Out. Right, right, right. Literally, and 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 I, I hate saying this movie's title because it's such garbage. But you know, The Shape of Water. You know, <laughs> is Shape of Water a horror movie? Is yeah, it, it's not. It's going to win Best Picture. It did, but <laughs> Get Out and and Shape of Water. That you know, eight hundred versions of that story. You know, yeah, yeah. What does it mean that 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 you know that genre cinema is getting? getting Oscar nominations. I mean, again, these are all such kind of trifling measures in some ways, like box office or Oscar nominations or reviews. To me, the question really is, not just for horror movies, but any kind of movie, will people talk about it mm. and teach it and study it and refer back to it in a non-specialized or mandatory way? Right, right. right? So, Psycho has proven itself. <laughs> the Exorcist has proven itself. Yeah. You know? I mean, again, in some ways I'm being very boringly canonical here. I mean, I'm going through things that are very, very obvious. Yeah. But but they have. Yeah. The fact that a director like Ari Aster takes so much from them proves that. Yeah. In a way, maybe it'll be hard to take something from Hereditary because it's so much of some of those influences. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that in some ways it becomes like a, the seance where she becomes inhabited by this spirit becomes like what the movie is, which is just this vessel that's channeling the ghosts or the spirits of these past horror movies. <laughs> you but, just made me like the movie better for that reason though. Right. But, but, but that that's kind of what it's doing, which is right. not the same thing as having its own personality. Right. And I guess maybe the reason the ending doesn't work for me is that I mean, on the one hand, I think it's dumb that Grandma's, like, king of the witches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dumb. But I also didn't feel a huge sense of loss when Peter's taken over. I think that that's what you need. I think that, like, in the Kaufman invasion of the Body Snatchers, when mm. Brooke Adams or Donald Sutherland get taken over, when their personalities are lost, mm. it's so sad. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. You, you, They're such relatable, funny, humane characters. You're like, fuck those aliens for taking them from us. I think in Hereditary, Peter's so tortured, so damaged. Alex Wolf lays on the puppy dog eyes so hard that actually in the end when he's taken over, I, I didn't care. But the thing is, my, fa- my favorite tweet about Hereditary, by the way, is yeah. Dan Schindel saying the film is a heartwarming uh, portrait of a community helping a young boy transition. Which I think <laughs> is actually great. Yeah. And I am so sad that the scary movie movies are over. <laughs> oh, yeah, they could. I am super fond <laughs> of the first and third. The, the third scary movie, which is mostly about signs. Uh huh. Which is Anna Faris in a parody of 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 signs. It's like is a that mix the one of, where Method Man shows up. 
Did the, do they all come in today? I don't know. If, I, f- I forget if Beth had mentioned three. I just know that the parodies of Shyamalan in that movie, <laughs> like, they are so good. I mean, Anna Fair is always good. Yeah, yeah. The parodies of Shyamalan in that movie are so good. I think, the, I think that the scary movie movies stopped, actually, in some ways, right before the elevated horror thing. Mm. We could really use, like, elevated horror movie <laughs> because there's so much slapstick potential in making fun of it follows yeah and you could do the witch and you could do hereditary i mean you could do all of these things you could do it comes at night you which, could do it comes at night you know, which, my big thing about it comes at night is what the fuck is it <laughs> like well, that movie was a, so empty it's a whole that's a whole other yeah. a whole a whole other podcast i was not terribly enamored of it comes at night uh yeah. Of, of it comes at night either. But then, I mean, that's why when you said elevated horror, I mean, like, I didn't, I guess I wasn't familiar with the description before this, and I was just assuming, oh, it's these movies that are, you know, well studied, lots of style, don't know what the fuck it is when it comes to what they're, like well, you said, that best would be, expression well, is empty vessel. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the negative, the negative way to look at it. But, you know, I will say this you can, you can feel film culture or film Twitter whatever you want to call it, kind of perk up and also get its back up a little bit each time a trailer for one of these comes out or the release for one of them happens because in a way it's like a shortcut towards the kinds of arguments you have about like real art cinema, mm. you know, directorial style mm-hmm. and theme and, and history and It influence. makes it easy for us to write about it. And, and makes it easy for us to write about it, but in the context of genre cinema, which you don't have to quite get it up for as much, mm-hmm. you know, like it's... There's something maybe a little more, not casual, but there's maybe something a little more enticing about being like, I'm going to see Hereditary than about, I'm going to go see Nuri Bilge Chelan or, 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 or Bellatar or something, you know, even yeah. though it activates the same kind of critical rhetoric where you can talk about intention and meaning and yeah. style, but it's still fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a horror movie. And it has the severity and the gravity that like, you know, comedy doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, there's a reason that we don't hear about elevated comedy. You know, the only person I think trying to make elevated comedies now is, is Judd Apatow. And that's, God, that's a whole other podcast. Well, but uh, um, What's Wes Anderson? Well, well again, if we, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, 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 these taxonomies are imprecise. I still, haven't, I still haven't seen Isle of Dogs. Maybe if I see Isle of Dogs, it'll push Hereditary <laughs> off my... But I'm trying to think what the best film I've seen so far in 2018 is. I mean, I think it's the Claire Denis movie, but technically that's from last that. year. Did you watch? Did you see Den of Thieves? I hear that's good. No, it's not. <laughs> Who told you that? I've heard it's great. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go home. Now. I would like to. If you end up watching that and saying it's great, let's do a Den of Thieves podcast. I, I will be totally up I'm for it. I'm gonna go but... home now. We're ending now at 10 p.m. on Tuesday. <laughs> Den of Thieves, two hours and 40 minutes long. My kid's gonna be up in like eight hours. I'm gonna go home and watch Den of Thieves. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Next pause, guys. Cheers yeah, to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> we'll end it there. Who told you it's great? Go visit www.doc.com.